Hey, I'm Pastor Robert. Welcome to Riverside Friends Church. Today, I, I want to start out by apologizing. I have a cold. I'm just getting over it, or uh, I hope I'm getting over it. So <coughs> I'm going to take a few moments every now and then to cough. I'm going to try not to cough in the microphone. Um, there are three things that you don't talk about in good company. This is like an old historical saying or whatever. Uh, sex, politics, and religion. And today, luckily for you, we get to talk about all three. It's here in 1 Corinthians, Paul is continuing to look at like individual issues that are plaguing the Corinthian church. And recently, he has been covering issues of unity and the role of pastors. But today, though, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he's opening a section on sex. And we're going to spend a number of the next weeks examining like Paul's teaching on sex. Paul, though, here in Corinthians is not giving a theology of sex. Instead, he is addressing individual issues within the Corinthian church. So as we develop and consider like a theology of sex and sexuality, we must understand that Paul is pulling from his own theology and applying it to these issues. He's not giving us a full theology. And when we understand that point, interpreting and applying these verses to our lives becomes easier. And so I'm going to start out, let's start out with like 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Uh, for my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in the spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of our Lord. Excuse me. First uh, Corinthians 5.1 is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you. Let's unpack this. What is sexual immorality? Sometimes it's easier to define the opposite of a thing. Like it's not really helpful to define immorality as being outside the bounds of morality. No, uh, that's a true definition. What is immoral is that which is not moral. That doesn't really help me. It's like saying you broke the rule because you didn't follow the rule. That doesn't help. That doesn't help define it for anybody. So maybe it's more helpful instead to define what is, instead of what is immoral, what is moral? What is good? So in our culture, we have this idea about sex, that sex is moral if it occurs between two consenting adults, that's moral. It is moral if both people agree to do it. And that's the moral standard of our culture. So then in our culture, sexual immorality is anything sexual that is not between two consenting adults. But Paul here has a different meaning of sexual immorality. You know, he lived 2,000 years ago in a different part of the world. The Greek word he uses here is pornea. Pornea, it's sexual immorality, it has a stricter definition than our cultural definition. And so it's sometimes easier to find the opposite. And for Paul and in the Bible, sexual morality, we could say that sexual morality is consenting sex within the confines of marriage. And so that Bible adds that extra bit of marriage into the definition of sexual morality. And so then sexual immorality in scripture, and according to Paul, is any sex that occurs outside of two consenting adults within the confines of marriage. So we all agree that all good things have their limits. You can eat too much food. There's limit to both the type and amount of food that you should eat. And in our culture, 
often these definitions, they boil down to arguments about freedom, that I should be free to consent to whomever I want. Well, maybe. Uh, I promise I'm going to cover I'm going to cover how the church should respond to cultural definitions that differ from Christian definitions. I'm going to get there in a couple of minutes. But for right now, let me talk about freedom and sexual desire. Because freedom is not doing what I want, when I want, how I want. Ask a, a drug addict how their freedom to use and them doing what they wanted, when they wanted, how they wanted. How did that freedom impact their family? How did that impact their loved ones? Now, I'm not saying sexual immorality and drug addiction are the same but the arguments of freedom to apply to both. What or how and when you want is not a definition of freedom. That's a definition of anarchy. And places with more anarchy, with more people doing what they want, when they want, how they want, are not more free, but less. Freedom only exists inside of well-defined lines, inside of well-defined categories. Our, cultural, our culture defines those lines at consenting adults. But scripture draws a more narrow line at consenting adults within the confines of marriage. Sexual desire is a good thing, according to scripture, but that desire is expressed in a good way in the confines of marriage. And just as we have like different definitions culturally and biblically of moral sex, we have different definitions of marriage. I'm not going to go into that today. I'm going to cover that in my sermon in two weeks. So now that's a lot of groundwork just to define what is sexual immorality. But this will help us going forward as we get to talk about sex and sexual immorality and marriage for the next few weeks. So then the question is, what's, what specific sexual immorality is Paul talking about here? He says that there is a kind not found even among pagans, for a man is living with his father's wife. So here in the Corinthian church is a man who is sleeping with his stepmother. The Greek implies, like our translations, that this is not his biological mother, but his father's wife his stepmom. Uh, we don't know anything about this family other than what is recorded here. The man is using his freedom to consent with his stepmom. And our culture would ask the question, like, are they both capable of consenting? Well, both Jews and Gentiles, believers, both the Jews and the Gentiles in the Corinthian church, they would see this as wrong. The Jewish believers here, they would see they would look at like Leviticus 18.8 that says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is the nakedness of your father. And the pagans of Paul's time, they would recognize this as wrong as well. Cicero, the Greek philosopher who died like 40 years before Jesus was born, he wrote about a mother who formed an ongoing intimate relationship with her stepson, and he called it wicked. So Paul's admonishment here is that they are being worse than even the pagans. There's a type of immorality known not even among the pagans. And the word pagan here is from the Greek word ethne, meaning like people who are not Jewish. It's an interesting point. The majority of the Corinthian church was not Jewish. And so Paul is holding these non-Jewish believers to the same standard as his Jewish counterparts. And he's laying the foundation for a point that I'm going to make later that everybody in the church has one standard. And so this next verse is interesting. He says, and are you proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? The Greek word for pride here is fusio, meaning to like puff up or pride. It also means arrogance. I think Paul is upset that they are arrogant to the sin in this church. They are allowing it to happen in the church unaddressed. 
Notice what Paul says when there is sexual sin in the church, when there is sexual sin in the church. Paul says that the response is mourning. When sexual sin occurs in the church, we should mourn. And then he says that they should have put out this man. So often the church has been quick to blame women. Paul here says, no, blame the dude. If he is not going to repent from this, then kick him out. He is the believer in this situation. Seems as though that she is not a believer. And so who does Paul blame? The believer. There is a lot that our Christian culture can learn from these passages. Um, Sarah and I, or mostly Sarah, has been listening to the book Gone Girl, an audiobook. I think it came out as a movie a couple years ago. And so I got a catch. We were in the car last weekend going to visit my mom for Mother Day. And uh, Sarah drove back from Marshalltown. Um, and there's a few chapters that we I got to listen to in the car because, you know, she has it on because she's driving. And I made a mental note of the time, of the timestamp, so I could go and, like, write down this quote. And I don't want to give every way, everything away from the book. Um, but what happens is the lead character, Nick, his wife has gone missing. And in that very real moment comes, like, a time of self-reflection. And the lead character, and Nick, he takes a moment to describe his home, his hometown, says that in 1985, a mall was built and his family got to go to the grand opening. And he describes like the rise and grandiosity of the mall opening. And eventually it's bankruptcy because of the internet and people buying things through online shopping. But here's what he says. He says, the bankruptcy of the mall matched my psyche perfectly. For several years, I had been bored. Not a whining, restless child's boredom, although I was not above that but a dense blanketing malaise. It seemed to me that there was nothing new to be discovered ever again. Our society was utterly ruin, ruinously derivative. Although the word derivative as a criticism is itself derivative. We were the first human beings who would never see anything for the first time. We stare at the wonders of the world, dull-eyed and underwhelmed. Mona Lisa, the pyramids, the Empire State Building, jungle animals on the attack, ancient icebergs collapsing, volcanoes erupting, I can't recall a single amazing thing that I have seen firsthand that I didn't immediately reference to a movie or TV show, a commercial. You know the awful sing-song blasé. Seen it. I've literally seen it all. And the worst thing, the secondhand experience is always better. The image is crisper. The view is keener. The camera angle and the soundtrack manipulate my emotions in a way reality can't anymore. And here's the part that captured my attention. Nick goes on. I don't know that we are actually human anymore. I don't know that we are actually human at this point. Those of us who are, like most of us, grew up with TV and movies and now the internet. If we are betrayed, we know the words to say. When a loved one dies, we know the words to say. If we want to play the stud or the smart aleck or the fool, we know the words to say. We are all working from the same dog-eared script. It's a very difficult era in which to be a person, just a real, actual person, instead of a collection of personality traits selected from an endless automatic characters. And if all of us are play-acting, there is no such thing as a soulmate because we don't have genuine souls. It had gotten to the point where it seemed like nothing matters because I'm not a real person and neither is anyone else. I think the author captures our cultural instincts. 
We've had so many fake experiences that we've forgotten how to enjoy a real one. I believe there's a genuine question that our generation must wrestle with. We must wrestle with the question of, do I risk the intimacy of meaningful friendship or do I settle for the momentary thrill of meaningless sex? There is a sexual immorality in our generation that we use sex as an escape, a momentary thrill. Friendships are hard. They require intimacy that will shape and challenge your very soul. Meaningless sex is easy. It's a momentary physical escape from all of this world. And so we throw ourselves into romantic relationships, not to form our souls, but to momentarily escape from our world. Did you know that in a friendship, like, people get to know you? Like, actually know you? Like, your flaws and your character effects, they... You know, in a friendship, they might even ask you to, like, grow, like, as a person. So the question that I have for you, like, are you risking the intimacy of meaningful friendships? Or are you settling for meaningless encounters? Because my hope is that this is a church where you encounter Jesus Christ. He desires to form within you and with you the most intimate friendship. He wants to speak into your soul. He desires to give you a meaningful encounter. And in the Corinthian church, there's blatant unrepentant sin. We will see that this unrepentance holds the church back from encountering Christ. The church at Corinth should not tolerate it. Let's continue on in verse, verses 6 to 8, because Paul is now going to use a metaphor that would be understood by the Jewish believers in the church. And this talk of yeast and unleavened bread that we're going to read is very familiar to the Jews. They base their entire identity. Remember that Israel and the Jewish people, they base their entire identity around an event that happened to, the, to their people some 1,500 years before they were born. God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. This is the book of Exodus. And from the Exodus, God saving them from slavery came a celebration, a festival, the Passover. This is the defining moment. And every year, they would make bread without yeast and they would eat a lamb and they would do this as a family. And the highlight was not the bread or the lamb or the food, but the story. They would retell the story of how God had saved them out of slavery in Egypt. The bread and the lamb point toward the promise of God to deliver them. Now, Paul is saying a little yeast leavens the whole dough. Get rid of the old yeast. And the people knew what was up. Listen to these verses. This is 1 Corinthians 6 to chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So every year, the Jewish people would clean from their houses all of the yeast. They would get rid of it all. And so Paul is using that imagery to tell the church they must also clean from the church all these forms of sin. It's wrong of us to try to hold one another accountable through leavened bread of malice and wickedness. Those are the old ways of working. We don't do this. We don't hold each other accountable through malice and evil. Instead, we live in God's story and we hold one another accountable when we are like the new unleavened no yeast bread of sincerity and truth. 
There's this dude named Brother. Let me. That's a lot. Let me put it to you this way. There's this dude named Brother Andrew, and he tells a a story about. He asks a question: How do you capture monkeys in the jungle? You know how to capture a monkey, don't you? Well, you take a coconut and you tie it to a tree, and then you drill a small hole in it. You drill a small hole in the coconut, and then what you do? The next part's really important. You take a little rock and you drop it in the hole. And the next part, you have to shake it. You have to shake that 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 coconut so the monkey hears you. The monkey up in the tree is going to hear that that treasure in there. And what's going to happen is the monkey's going to come down. He's going to stick his paw in the hole. What you got to do is you got to get the hole small enough to fit the hand in, but not. But then when he grabs that rock, he can't get his hand back out. He can't pull it back out. And his fist, he just can't get it out. So then you can just walk up to the monkey and just grab him. His mind won't let go of the treasure. And the monkey actually traps himself. You don't have to do anything. You just walk up and grab him. Now, this is just a silly story, right? But I think it communicates a real truth. There are old ways of doing things that have captured our minds. And they're like this treasure inside this coconut that we can't pull our hand out of. And as long as we struggle to let go, we have made ourselves prisoners. It's not that we've, we hold ourselves prisoners and captives in this way. So what do we need to let go of so that you can become new? What areas of the world have become like a like yeast in your bread? How will you let go of your malice and wickedness to make new sincerity and truth? I told you a while ago that I would cover how we as a church respond when the culture has a different meaning on a topic than we do. This is going to go into my third point. Verses 9 to 13. It says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. That last little bits and quotes, and we got to talk about that. <laughs> In recovery, there's a saying. It says, pick up your own side of the street. And Paul is telling the Corinthians, you should be more concerned with sexual immorality in here rather than out there in the world. People out there are going to do what they want. What are you doing about your own side of the street? And Paul here is telling the Corinthians, clean up your own side of the street. But he's also saying it would be wrong to the church not to spend time with the people in the world. Even though we disagree with their sexual ethics and their culturally informed lifestyles, it'd be wrong of us not to spend time with them. Cutting people out of our lives because we disagree with their sexual ethic is also inappropriate. Because as Paul says in that case, we would have to leave the world. There'd be nobody left for us to meet with. Whether it is marriage or sex, it is not appropriate for the church to apply our definition to people who are not believers. And that's hard. That's hard for our church to understand, the church today to understand. Paul understands that their definitions are broken. He even says they'll be judged for it. But he also knows that evangelism through head bashing is ineffective. When it comes to the church, though, we have to have strict standards. 
If you want to be a Christian, be prepared to hold others to a higher standard and also prepare yourselves to be held to a higher standard. That if you are a brother or sister, prepared to live to a higher level. And frankly, the church has done a poor job of this, not just in this generation, but in the past number of generations. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks. For now, I just want to note that for a number of decades, the divorce rate has been the same for Christians as for non-Christians. In every measurable way, Christians tend to have the same sexual ethic, ethic issues as the rest of the world around us. We haven't done a good job of living at a higher standard. Let me, let me illustrate it like this. Last Wednesday, I was out for a run, and I ran by two houses right next to each other. And the one house had a very nicely manicured lawn. It was well-kept. It had like cut lines in the grass already. I don't even know how they do that. And the other one, the other house had clearly not been mowed all year. And you might think you know where this is going, but you don't. You don't know where this illustration's going. So the easy contrast would be like, well, be like, be like the well-manicured house. That would be a low-hanging fruit illustration. Follow me. I promise you, you'll be surprised where I take this story. Because you've all seen the juxtaposition of one freshly cut lawn next to an unmowed lawn. And as I was running by the unmowed lawn, I saw a little sign near the house. And it said on it, no mow may. No mow may. I caught just a glimpse of the sign. And what it was, it was advocating letting your lawn grow for the whole month of May. Don't cut your grass at all in the month of May. Now, I don't need a re- I don't know about you. I don't need a reason to be lazy. So thank you for the permission. The sign and the sign on it, it had a list of reasons of why, why not to mow. That small little flowers will spring up faster in your lawn than anywhere else. And bees need those flowers. So it helps the bees. Like not cutting your grass helps the bees. And that seems like a great cause. You know, humanity needs healthy bee populations. They pollinate the majority of the food we eat or the food that our food eats. So bee populations around the world are in trouble. And this house has a great sign. It says, hey, don't cut the grass in May. But the issue is they had put the sign so far down that it's covered up by the grass. You can't see the sign unless you really pay attention. He planted his sign too low to the ground and now it can't be seen. So the good thing he's doing is getting in the way of telling others about the good thing. See, you had no idea where this was going, did you? A sign a few inches higher would serve a better purpose. The good thing he's doing is getting in the way of telling others about the good thing. In Paul's position to the Corinthian church, it might apply to us today. We should pick up our own side of the street. None of us have perfectly manicured lives. Everybody can see that our lives are a mess. And my hope is that in my life, I have a sign that says, my life is a mess, but Jesus is giving it a purpose. In God's kingdom, our sexuality has a place to grow. And that is in the confines of a healthy marriage relationship. The reality is that we need to hold ourselves and one another to the standard as God has set for us. And the church has done this poorly. We're covering up our own signs. We've planted our signs too far down in the weeds. And when sexual, sexual immorality enters a church, it does not just affect the two people who engage in it. It affects the whole church. 
so we need tall signs that rise above our mess. Others will not see God in your life because you're living down in the weeds. I guess my question is, where is your sign? Is it down in the weeds where nobody can see that your life is pointing towards Christ? Or is your sign readable by those who might pass by? So wrapping up, here's what we need to see. There's a definite sexual immorality. Biblical sexual immorality is narrowly defined, is more narrowly defined than our cultural immorality. Boom. And for us Christians, Christ wants us to live differently than how we used to. This is true no matter who we are. If we're coming from a non-Christian background, we are most likely coming from a sexual ethic that is not in line with scripture. How is God leading you now? What ethic is he calling you towards? If you've been in the church for a long time, we've You've likely seen sexual ethics in the church slip. How can you help hold one another accountable in a way that is sincere and true instead of the old ways of malice and evil? There's a very different standard that applies to Christians and unbelievers. Who should we focus our energy on? Let's clean up our side of the street first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you've done, all that you've brought about, the goodness in our lives. Would you just continue to point us towards you? We just ask this in your name. Amen.